This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome everyone to the Joan Hamburg Show. And I have a real treat today. Someone I've known for a long time. And you know him because he's done so much theater and movies. He does everything. Julian Schlossberg. Julian has a new book. Try Not to Hold It Against Me, A Producer's Life. And here's a man who grew up in New York City, as a kid, fell in love with the entertainment business. But as he points out, in the old days, there were movie theaters everywhere, and that was an entertainment. You could spend the whole day in an air-conditioned movie or movies and see them, and your parents thought you were safe, and everything worked out. Today, in my neighborhood, we had two movie theaters. Now we have none. I mean, we have part of one that every now and then will come up with a film, but the good old days are gone. And as we all talk about, because I have kids in the movie business, what's going to happen to the movie business? You know, where are people going to see their movies? Can you sit in your pajamas and still create a hit? If you're a comedy writer, you need a house full of people laughing. Laughter is contagious. Anyway, Julian takes us on a fabulous ride. And he started really as a kid. And he started learning how to buy movies for national theater chains. And he worked for a lot of major companies. Started his own called Castle Hill Productions and produced a lot, and worked with major stars, Elaine May, Woody Allen, Mike Nichols. And I loved hearing about the cast of characters that changed the course of Julian's life. So do you find it interesting that you were so directed as a kid and really knew where you wanted to go? Well, I didn't think it was unusual until all my friends, when we got older, would say, you always knew what you wanted to do. And I guess I did. I didn't think of it that way. I I just knew what I wanted to do. My mother, Joan, you would love this. My mother was very upset that I would bring Variety home at 10 years old. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And she would say, what are you doing? I want you to be a lawyer, an accountant. And I said, well, sound like me. Yeah. <laughs> well, but look how well your son did. My God, how well he did in the entertainment business. Yeah, but he, like you, that's always what he wanted to be. And I sounded like your mother. What, <laughs> being a lawyer isn't good enough for you? Or you don't want to be a doctor? <laughs> well, you know, it was interesting, Joan. I would, I would, I put, kind of put myself through school, uh, college, driving a cab in New York. And I, I, went all around trying to find a cab with a radio because most of the garages didn't want to buy the radio. Why would they pay extra money for a cab with a radio? But I found one that did. 
and I listened to Mike Nichols and Elaine May's albums and Woody album, oh, Woody Allen's albums and, and Alan Arkin from the Second City. And all I wanted to do was meet them and shake their hand and tell them what they meant to me. The fact that I became their producer really shocked me. That, it, that did shock me. I, I, I still can't believe it. Then when I was writing the book, I kept thinking, wow, this is this is really interesting. It's actually interesting me, which was, I guess, a good way to keep writing the book. Well, I, and I've often wondered when you write a book like that, which starts really at the very beginning, how cathartic is that? Was it like going to a good shrink to see your whole life from a little boy on to well, it, this part it, of your life? That's such a good question, and and I I don't you know I I think in a way you know they talk about people channeling, and maybe I was channeling because it came to me so easily the the the, the memories I mean, and that was surprising. I didn't think they would, but I I guess you know we do we do have it's all within us. I mean they say the brain is a computer, and I guess if you can download it, I I started doing it. The idea that I knew that I loved show business from the very beginning. The idea that I was on the wrong coast, that was a whole deal, a whole different situation because obviously everything that I was interested in seemed to be happening in L.A. Fortunately, though, I was around as a young man for the advent of television. And that's what I talk about in the book a lot, the early days of being an audience member. Right. my dear friend Elaine May wrote the foreword to the book, and she was so uh, encouraging about the beginnings. I said, oh, I think people will want to read about George C. Scott and Shirley MacLaine and all the people I worked and knew. And she said, people will also like about the, will like the nostalgia about what it was like to go downtown as a kid and see Judy Garland at the palace or to or to go to McGuinness's the roast beef king or to oh, grand right. hot dogs and we used and to I, love I guess, that and i and i think yeah i mean i joan i had such fond memories of going to the paramount theater and the capitol theater full orchestras the movie was there but the orchestras were there i would see Joni james perform and sing i'd see comics i would see vaudeville shows it was an amazing time, uh, and I, I I just relished in it, and so I tried to bring it back, uh, especially at the first part of the book about what that was like—that world that will never come back, never come back again. Uh, and the I'll comics. Tell you one thing that you might be interested in, if what? I may. The Kingsbridge Armory was the largest armory in the world. It was in the Bronx, and I lived across the street from it. Now, this was long before the. New York City Coliseum or the Javits Center was built. So the car shows, the motorboat shows, all of them went to the Kingsbridge Armory. But I went as a kid because there were rodeos, rodeos in the Bronx with Buster Crab and Johnny McBrown coming up and, and, and either riding their horses and I could go and get their autographs. It was a terrific time, and I write all about that. And about... Like, I was lucky to have sort of come of age with the Sid Caesar and all those brilliant comedies and variety shows when you'd sit down on Sunday night and watch television, and it was a big deal. 
you know, oh, it, it was. was original it was. and funny, and, and you got the biggest kick out of everything. And, and it was interesting, too, because I was able to get to Sid Caesar and Max Liebman, who produced Show of Shows. And my very first movie that I produced was 10 from your Show of Shows, taking 10 of their greatest sketches and putting it into a movie and opening it up in a theatrical basis. It was my first movie, and it inspired me to then go after Steve Allen's uh, uh, shows and see if he had any. And I wanted the Tonight Show, but he didn't have the kinescopes. But he did have his Sunday night program, and we got he had everybody on every ma major comic from Oh Bob Hope to Jerry Lewis, everybody at the time. And so we did two one-hour specials on that. So working with Sid Caesar and Steve Allen, it was just terrific, and be able to make films out of uh, their kinescopes. But you know what's amazing, and I don't know if it could happen today? Here you are, this young kid from the Bronx. It isn't like you grew up in showbiz. You said you didn't even have your own bedroom. I didn't. And you slept in a little corner of what was <laughs> yeah. off the kitchen. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so you've come a long way. Yes, but I, 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 you, I have my own bedroom now. That's, thank goodness, Julian. Thank goodness. Yeah. From when your neighborhood where you grow up, you're a big success. <laughs> but, well, you know, it's been a it's been that part of, of looking back and going to the old neighborhood. I know, you know, all of us who grew up in New York City know that we we were in a neighborhood. It was a neighborhood. We knew the butcher, we knew the baker, we true. knew the deli, we knew these stores and the store owners. It it wasn't big giant supermarkets. There was an A&P, but by and large, it was our conclave. That's where we lived. And very rarely did you leave that area unless you went downtown to see a movie, which, as you remember, Joan, could play a year downtown before exactly. it came up to the, to the neighborhood. And we used to get dressed to go to the movies. That's right. You know, it was, especially if it was a musical, you know, you, you would have to really put something decent on yeah, and, you and go good shoes. Way, you couldn't go the way you usually would go. <laughs> I'm talking to Julian Schlossberg, his new book, Try Not to Hold It Against Me, A Producer's Life. And what all of you are going to marvel at, too, is how this kid from the Bronx got access to everyone. Now, Elaine May wasn't, she didn't know she was going to grow up to be Elaine May yet at that time, or even Woody Allen. Woody Allen probably knew and always thought, I'm definitely Woody Allen. Screw the others. Well, Elaine, but, interestingly enough's father uh, had a troupe. Uh, he was a, 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 a Yiddish a director and writer, and he had a troupe that went all over the world, and she acted as a little girl as did Sidney Lumet in Yiddish theater. They didn't act together, but they both came from the Yiddish theater background. Uh, Elaine, of course, does not like to do publicity, and she's one of the few people in show business, maybe the only, who paid a press agent to keep her out of the papers. That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. Well, it, in her case, it didn't work because the talent was so big. That's true. It was bigger than her anxiety. Yes, that's true. I, I tried for seven years on WMCA to get her on my show, and she was my close friend. <laughs> she wouldn't and you do, could it. do Well, you, you know, we can understand. 
But I loved, because I worked with Barry Gray for years, your Barry Gray stories and all the cast of characters who were around and part of your life when you were just coming of age yourself. It, it is true. And, and Barry Gray, who I really thought the world of when I listened to him as a kid, I couldn't believe that I was going to be working with him on WMCA. But yeah. it turned out that he didn't turn out to be an ally of mine. He wanted us to do a, re a television show together called the Schlossberg Gray Report. And he said, I'm giving you top billing. And I said, you're only giving me top billing because the Gray Schlossberg Report sounds terrible. It sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, I refused to do it. Uh, not because uh, I just, you know, I write in the book, Joan, that there's a wonderful movie called Double Indemnity, and Edward G. Robinson is with Fred, Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. But Robinson says that he touches his chest and he goes, when the little man inside me tells me something, I have to listen. Well, the little man inside me told me, stay away from Barry Gray. He's not going to work. <laughs> You're not going to work with him. And so we didn't work. And... Uh, but I was able to get Bob Hope and George Burns and Jack Nicholson. I had the biggest names on the show. And while he was certainly a bigger name than I was, he couldn't get those people. I got them because of personal contacts, and he didn't have them. And it turned out that he actually went to, <laughs> to the station owner and got me off the air after seven years on the basis that I had made a movie, which I had with Danny Goldberg called No Nukes, uh, a concert movie, but against nuclear energy with Bruce Springsteen, probably the only movie Bruce ever made, mm. in fact. And he uh, said, he's on the air pushing his own movie. Well, I was pushing the movie. Why not? I, yeah. Yeah, but I had nothing. To, I couldn't gain. I was never paid to make the movie. And if it made $100 million, I would have made zero because I had no piece of it. I was doing it because I believed in the danger potential of of nuclear energy and he got me off he got me off the air because between barry gray and me they were going to do what barry gray wanted so after seven years <laughs> i was wow. i couldn't even go on joan to say goodbye and thank the listeners it wouldn't even let me do that had to cancel malcolm mcdowell who was my guest so do, do i do i forget these things obviously not not obviously <laughs> not and they come out you know, in various ways. I know, you know, it's like cross me once and you're on the list. <laughs> and, and, well, yeah, and, and uh, it, but it was saddened because, you know, from afar, I thought the world of a man. I did. So I know. anyhow, he, he, I, my mother taught me not to say bad about anyone. So maybe I shouldn't have said it. Sorry, it's Mom. It's too late, but too it's late. okay. No, he was definitely a tough cookie. Yes. You know, we had listener trips in those days, and we would schlep people all over the world. And Barry Gray was on the air, so he had to do it too. But he didn't like listener company too much, you know. <laughs> and this is a call-in station we should point out. <laughs> yeah, call-in. And, and, and you heard everything. You know, but the whole world is changing and you've done everything from radio and television and film and Broadway. What still touches your heart the most? I think theater does. I, I, if theater is done well, there is nothing like it. You're there. You can feel it. You can see it. 
you see in film and television, the director kind of tells you what you're going to watch. But in theater, as an audience member, you're the camera. You can look where you want to look. Big difference. You can make a big difference by just being able to say, you know, I'm interested in that actor, even though he's not talking right now. What is he mm-hmm. doing? It's a whole different uh, experience. And the visceral, the excitement of, of, of the anger or the crying really can get to you much more in person than on film. Yeah, so right. I think theater is my favorite. And, and the other thing is this. It's one location. As a producer, you say, oh, thank goodness, I'm only in one location the right. whole time I'm working. However, as you also know, Joan, it's the most precarious. It's the most difficult uh, to raise the money, to get an audience. Yeah, to get and, paid back. And, and as you know, most of sh- uh, the, th- the shows fail. Most of the shows don't make money. So the fact that I've been able to do as many as I have, I'm very grateful uh, because uh, I, I think I think if you can really show that you have a passion for something and people will kind of jump with you, they, as long as they made some money occasionally along the way. Yeah, no, it's, it's without question very difficult in theater. And yes. even now... You know, it's getting harder and harder to fill a house. Part of it is most people can't pay the almost $300 a ticket. Yes, you know, it's and really crazy, though. Crazy, kind of and price. park your they, car they, and everything yeah. else. It's a tough night. It really it really is, and, and it's amazing to me. I mean, to, to show the enormous popularity of, of a, a man like you, Jackman, can bring in $3 million per week in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, it's unbelievable. But uh, having met him twice, not a friend, he wouldn't know me if I walked in the door, but I was with him twice, one of the warmest, kindest, most loving human beings you can meet. And I guess it comes across. I guess the public just adores the man. Uh, And they should, because he's just so talented and and seemingly, as I say, because I never worked with him, so kind. Right. And every time I would go to theater with him, the audience would go berserk. All he had to do was hiccup, and they would go, <laughs> bravo, bravo, stand up, and absolutely love it. And he, some people have that magic. They do. And, and, and you can't take it a- away. And especially to be, be able to be appealing to both men and women. That's a real talent. Yeah, no, it is. And not to begrudge. You know, sometimes success comes with its own issues. Oh, yes. Well, you know, the time that people become stars, they're often they're damaged goods because they've had so much rejection. They've been treated as the beginning Shabbily. so badly mm-hmm. that sadly they turn into, say, well, can turn into a, a nasty human beings. It's true, but why do you think it's so hard to put up a show that gets an audience and gets attention? What's wrong in the world of theater where it's so difficult to do that? Well, as you said earlier, and you're totally right, right off the bat, you're starting out by saying to people, you've got to spend a lot of money to see this. That's a tough thing in in a world where people are trying to pay the rent or the college uh, tuition for for kids. So you have that problem. And and what's happened, 
you and I grew up, Joan, where the majority of the people who went to theater on Broadway were from New York, New Jersey, and Long Island, right. Connecticut. Now, 70 to 75 percent of the audience are tourists. They're not from New York. And they want a musical, too. And they, want, they don't want to sit and they don't want to have to think. They don't, by and large. So we have to hope that the 25 percent of the New Yorkers who are going uh, may hopefully go to see something that has some intelligence and something to do with the world we're living in. I mean, I love musicals. I produce musicals. But I still would be very unhappy if all shows that were uh, drama or comedies were not produced. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, if you go, when you go around the country and you see, as I have, where regional theaters in the biggest cities put on musicals only, they don't even bring it. They used to bring in at least a Neil Simon play or something. They don't now. It's just musicals by and large. I know. They will. They're afraid. But they're, exactly, they're afraid. And, you know, the audience now is bombarded. You know, they talk about the information highway. It's bumper to bumper. Everybody's coming at you. You remember the song from Midnight Cowboy, Everybody's Talking? Yeah. I say everybody's hawking. <laughs> it's true. <You> know? <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable true. with the streaming and the bloggers and the podcast and the computer. And my golly, I mean, nobody made a movie in the history of movies to be shown on an iPhone. They just didn't. <laughs> and no, or a have. comedy to be watched and listened to alone. In your bedroom or living room. It's not fun to laugh alone. You need everyone around you to be cracking up. That's right. That's part of the joy of seeing a comedy with people. So let me ask you, Julian. I'm talking to Julian Schlossberg, his new book, Try Not to Hold It Against Me, A Producer's Life. Are the movies going to survive all this? I, I mean, the theaters they, are think, empty. I think they will, but it'll be uh, much less of the theaters. I think the theaters, many of them will sadly are already going out of business. But I'm afraid it'll be a, a, a you know, the streaming has taken over, and, and they were doing pretty well. But when the pandemic hit, oh, my God, that was a bonanza for the streaming companies. Yeah. You know, people said, oh, I don't have to go out. I don't even have to go to work. I can yeah. sit home and do my job, and I can sit home and watch a movie. I know, and, that, and that's absolutely what's happening. I went to see the Spielberg movie at a very popular theater, you know, right opposite Bloomingdale's on 3rd Avenue in the 60s. Yes. And there were um, three of us, and we go into the theater, and so help me, there were four seats occupied in uh, front of us, and that was it. Yeah. And it's, I thought, how could that be? But it it's, was. And it's a lovely movie and very warm and enjoyable. And no, people liked it, but there were no people. No, you know, it's, it's very, it's a tough, it's just a very tough time. The, 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 the positive nature of all this is that at least there's a lot of outlets for, let's say, actors, writers, directors, right. uh, where they didn't have before these enormous amount of movies that are now being made. When I was a kid and you were a kid, every studio made a movie a week. They made Mm. approximately 50 movies each studio. It was an incredible time. 
And that mm. was then. And then, of course, it changed. In fact, when I was a, a vice president of production of Paramount, we were making 14 movies. That was it. You know, that would be it. So that's quite a diminution, to say the least, you know. So well, I guess it's going up and down, as, as, as I guess the world does. That's right. And we all have to ride with it. And Julian's book is going to take you for a wonderful, interesting, funny ride. You're going to learn a lot about Hollywood, about New York, about producers. Maybe you want to be in the business. Maybe you don't. But whatever it is, Julian writes, try not to hold it against me, a producer's life. Congratulations. I look forward to talking to you very soon. Thank you, Joan, and thank you for inviting me. Anytime. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. Much more ahead.